Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the 2017 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of the 5th and 6th of August at the Water Poet in Fulgate Street and at the Curzon Cinema in Aldgate in the East End of London, England. The first speaker we are pleased to present was actually the last speaker on the itinerary, and that is author Tom Westcott. Tom is the author of the highly regarded books The Bank Holiday Murders and Ripper Confidential, and he spoke at the conference via pre-recorded video from his home in Oklahoma with a talk entitled Reading Between the Lines. Well, hello there. Hello, London. Um, you know, I suppose I don't need an introduction, but for the sake, you know, of, you know, for my own humbleness, I'm going to introduce myself. I am Tom Westcott, uh, closing out this conference. So that means I'm the big headliner, which I'm not surprised about at all. Um, makes perfect sense. I've written um, two wonderful books. I've got the uh, Bank Holiday Murders, um, and then I've got uh, Ripper Confidential. You can see here, a little quick plug. And pretty much, you know, as a whole, unanimously, uh, Ripperology has deemed these the best books, like, ever written uh, by any human ever. So I'm, I'm really proud of that. And, uh, you know, a little quick background before we get to the talk. I got into Ripperology quite a long time ago, um, in the nineties, late nineties, 98, probably before most of you were born. Um, and it came about because, you know, all the Ripperologists, you know, Paul Begg, uh, Martin Fido, Stuart Evans, all those guys, Don Rumbelow, were asked the same question. They're like, you know, um, what does the Ripper case need to bring it back to life? And they all answered the same. They said, we need more Americans coming in. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, I'm up. And Patricia Cornwell, same thing. We we both got together, got the same haircut, and uh, decided we were going to, you know, set about Solving the Ripper case, which she did in five minutes, by the way, I should add. I, it's taken me a whole heck of a lot longer. I'm still not there yet. Um, I just figured out who Pearly Paul was when writing, you know, this. So I've, I've got catch-up to do, a lot of catch-up work to do. But um, I'm, you know, filled with gratitude that Adam Wood uh, asked me to be here. He was thinking the same thing. He's like, well... It's an East End of London conference, and it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have one of those without an American. So he said, you know, particularly someone from the Midwest, because that makes a lot of sense with the East End. So I'm in Oklahoma. That's where I'm talking to you from, uh, obviously, because half of you have restraining orders against me. I could not appear there in person. And uh, Adam decided it was also best that I not appear live via satellite for some reason, I possibly the heckling that's occurring now. He's sparing me from having to hear that. So without further ado, we're going to get on to my talk, um, which I wrote about 10 minutes ago. You know, I just, I'd forgotten this thing was going to happen. Um, so uh, I just sat down and quickly uh, pinned this out, but it's called Reading Between the Lines. And uh, basically what that is, is um, 
logical inference is what I'll call it. Uh, throughout my research, I've, there's been a lot of times when um, things just occur to you that make sense, but you can't quite call them like a solid fact because it's not written out in black and white. You know, you can't quote um, Charles Warren or Robert Anderson on it. It's just something that occurs to you because, um, you know, enough things have come together to form a picture, kind of like a circumstantial evidence case. It works kind of like that. Um, and I explore a whole ton of that in Bank Holiday Murders, again, with Pearly Paul, Martha Tabram, the medical evidence. And then again, in Ripper Confidential, uh, you know, I'm doing that again with Polly Nichols and some other things. And so I thought I would take a few examples and highlight those in the talk today. Uh, regarding Polly Nichols, it's assumed that um, the Ripper did not make away with any portion of her um, other than maybe some cheap rings she was wearing. However, after researching the case for some years, I wasn't quite so sure about that. Um, I thought perhaps he might have been a little more successful in his mission uh, than we uh, might have first thought. And so that's what I set about looking to do. First, I had to establish, at least for my own satisfaction, that it was, in fact, his mission to purloin an organ. Um, and, of course, it makes sense that it would be, because that's what he did a couple weeks later with Annie Chapman. But I wanted to take a look at the medical evidence uh, in the Nichols case specifically and see what could be found. And, uh, of course, we don't have Dr. Llewellyn's medical records. That's unfortunate. But we do have um, some information that was given at the inquest, but primarily Inspector John Spratling's notes that he took while, you know, during the course of the brief postmortem that Dr. Llewellyn performed. And I've got some quotes here. Uh, one of the things that's obvious when you read that is Spratling is describing two There's a lot of different wounds. Nick's cuts, the omentum was cut. But there was two primary wounds that the Ripper made, and I thought that was fascinating. Um, let's see here. Uh, regarding the first, he writes, the abdomen had been cut open from the center of bottom of ribs along the right side. And, you know, a star reporter who was allowed in the mortuary to make these same observations um, described the same wound as follows. It went straight upward along the center of the body and reaching to the breastbone. Now, the second primary wound, according to Spratling, ran under the pelvis to the left of stomach. There, the wound was jagged. The star reporter wrote that it veered to the killer's right, slitting up the groin and passing over the hip. Now, the interesting thing about these two wounds is they created a flap. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this as though I'm, like, standing in front of you. I don't know how much you can see. But uh, it created a flap over her abdomen, a rather large one, from which... Uh, intestines were later seen to be protruding, uh, pushing out. Um, clearly, this was an injury that was made with a purpose, and they didn't know that at the time, of course, but that purpose would become obvious a couple weeks later with Annie Chapman when she was missing her uterus. Uh, the only problem then for the police is that when they had this revelation that this is what their killer was up to, Polly Nichols was already buried in the ground. By the time Annie Chapman was found, by the time she was murdered, Nichols had already been buried. And then I, you know, of course, we assume that Dr. Llewellyn would have performed the same postmortem that we saw Dr. Colleen do at Tabram when he sat up there uh, at the inquest and gave, you know, lots of details about her, the health of her various organs. 
Dr. George Baxter Phillips, a very, very thorough job. He even diagnosed Annie Chapman with a terminal illness that would have killed her had the river not. Um, very thorough jobs done by these two gentlemen. We see no evidence of that in the case of Dr. Llewellyn. It just didn't, uh, you know, he may have, may have happened, but we don't see it. Now what we do have, and it's in my book, Ripper Confidential, um, he, he was a very brief postmortem. He started just a few hours before his appearance at the inquest um, is when he started his postmortem. And during that time, journalists were allowed in. Um, uh, he also had to stop on occasion when the police would bring a witness in to view the body to see if they recognize her. Of course, she would have been covered up to the neck um, while those gentlemen were in there. And this would have slowed the postmortem process down. And I'm not sure there would have been time enough for him to have removed all of her organs, looked at them, made, you know, uh, and remember now, no one before Polly Nichols had an organ taken, so no one had it in their mind that this might be a possibility, um, that this is what the killer was up to. They really, as far as Llewellyn was concerned, this was just another dead prostitute. The Ripper frenzy had not broken out yet. There wasn't this immense pressure on the police to catch a killer as what happened after, you know, Polly Nichols, and particularly after Annie Chapman. So um, I don't know how thorough Llewellyn's postmortem would have been. What we do know is that he didn't have any details to give uh, regarding the state of the organs or anything like that. Um, we also know that when her father mentioned a scar on her forehead that she'd had since childhood, Llewellyn had not noticed it. He had not made note of that and had to go back to the mortuary and look just to see if it was there. Um, and what I thought uh, was most interesting or most telling, what really gives me pause about Llewellyn is a comment he made um, about, uh, you know, after, this would have been after Annie Chapman had been discovered, uh, the question had come up, you know, was maybe, you know, Polly Nichols, did the same thing happen to her? Uh, had she been left intact by her killer? Um, and what he said was, uh, you know, to the effect of, uh, you know, I don't believe that, you know, anything was taken from her. I believe she was intact. He could not speak to the facts of it. He could only speak to his personal belief as to what uh, may or may not happen. I go into a lot more detail about this in my book, but it's important because all Ripper books say the same thing. The Ripper left Polly Nichols intact. He did not further mutilate her. And from that, we reach certain conclusions, such as the killer was interrupted um, by Charles Cross, or um, I add uh, that Charles Cross himself was the Ripper, you know, and that he was interrupted by Robert Paul. So if, in fact, um, that none of those are the case and an organ was taken, um, that changes everything right there. Unfortunately, we'll never know for sure because I don't believe Dr. Llewellyn ever knew for sure. Uh, and it is possible Polly Nichols was missing a uterus. I don't know that, though. I'm not stating that was the case, just that it is possible, and it's something we should keep in mind because um, it, it's not necessarily a good thing to state something as fact if it's not, right? So if it's not a fact that she was left intact, it's just a belief that Llewellyn had, then that's perhaps how we should treat it. Um, let's see here. Now, uh, we're going to switch gears 
and uh, talk about the Goulston Street Graffito. That was a dismissive term applied to it by Martin Fido in 87, who was at the time building a case that the Ripper didn't write it, so he calls it a graffito. But that's caught on because it's a fun word. So, graffito, it shall remain. Anyways, we're going to talk about the uh, Goulston Street graffito, Sir Robert Anderson, and what one might tell us about the other. Um, In 1908, in an interview for the Daily Chronicle, Sir Robert discussed clues that were, and I quote, uh, destroyed, wiped out, absolutely. Clues that might very easily have secured for us proof of the identity of the assassin. Uh, he specifically references the graffito when he mentions, and I quote, there was writing on a wall, a most valuable clue, handwriting that might have been at once recognized as belonging to a certain individual. Now, two years later in 1910, Anderson published his memoirs, but did not discuss the graffito or the act of uh, his superior in having it obliterated. However, in writing to a newspaper in response to criticisms, he spoke very absolutely Uh, The paper in question has not been identified, but it is quoted by journalist and author J. Hall Richardson in his memoir of 1927, entitled From City to Fleet Street. Um, According to Richardson, Anderson, who was on leave during the double event, uh, agreed with the reviewer of his memoir that the action of erasing the writing uh, was crass stupidity. And he credited the chalk writing as being the only tangible evidence obtained pointing to the identity of Jack the Ripper. Uh, He goes on to state unequivocally that the writing was chalked by the murderer, and he teases that, uh, you know, he had written all his opinions on the graffiti and everything up for the Blackwood Magazine article, um, but he struck it, you know, probably for reasons of libel. Uh, What's most interesting about Anderson's opinions... um, is that he is so certain that the Ripper wrote the graffito. That is one thing we know that he cannot have been certain about, as no one but the author of the chalk writing would would have known who written it. Um, I would suggest this exposes a tendency Anderson had to promote his own uh, personal beliefs as fact when writing for the public, at least when writing for the public. Um, If we can agree that Anderson could not have been as certain as he claimed, about the graffiti, then perhaps we can agree that he might have similarly overstated the case against his preferred Polish Jew suspect. Uh, However, what we uh, can also surmise from this is that whoever his suspect was, um, that person was fully capable of writing the graffiti in a, you know, a good schoolboy hand. Otherwise, Anderson would not have been so certain about both things, is my point. So if you have, I don't know, any of these suspects, Nathan Kaminsky, any of them, um, were not, you know, David Cohen, were not fluent handwriters in English. Um, we can probably strike them from the list, if not as from the list of Ripper suspects, from the list of Anderson suspects. And that might narrow that field down a little bit. Uh, while still on the subject of Anderson's memoirs, I want to discuss something else I noticed. Um, I was researching all the contemporary investigators from the time to get quotes that they had written or said to uh, um, journalists regarding the graffito for the long essay essay I wrote. Again, I'm going to do a quick promotion, uh, Ripper Confidential. Uh, An essay I wrote in there about the graffito, one of the longest ever written. Great, great stuff. Boring to write. Boring, but great to read. You'll love it. 
anyway, um, I was, uh, you know, compiling these quotes and, uh, something occurred to me. Um, and it was from, uh, comments made by major Henry Smith, who at the time of the double event, he was acting, he, he was actually the chief superintendent of the city police, but, uh, Frazier, the commissioner was on leave as like apparently every cop was during the Ripper murders. Right. Um, there was apparently do was ten, you know, Walter do was 10 places at once, according to his memoirs, but everyone else was on leave. So, uh, Frazier was gone. Um, Smith was the man in charge. Two years later, he would become the commissioner and would remain the commissioner until 1901. So he was, during this whole Kosminski thing and all of this, he was very much in play as the main guy um, for the city police. And so anything he has to say on that I, I thought might might be worth uh, listening to. But anyway, uh, he got knighted in 1910, um, Major Henry Smith did, and thus became Sir Henry. Uh, of course, Anderson already was knighted. He was Sir Robert. And um, they both happened to be writing their memoirs at the same time. When Smith was writing his, um, Anderson's memoir was being serialized in Blackwood's magazine. And Smith had already written his chapter on the Ripper when someone pointed out to him the sixth installment of Anderson's, where Anderson talks all about the Ripper. And apparently Smith like fell out of his chair reading this stuff because he 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 just started blathering on the page. He was very upset, uh, offended by uh, some of the stuff Anderson had to say, um, particularly about the Jews. Uh, Smith took great umbrage with Anderson's comments to the effect that the Ripper was shielded by his fellow Jews. Smith writes, uh, Sir Robert does not tell us how many of his people sheltered the murderer. But whether they were two dozen in number or 200 or 2,000, uh, he accuses them of being accessories to these crimes before and after their committal. Uh, Sir Robert talks of the lighter side of his official life. There is nothing light here. A heavier indictment could not be framed against a class whose conduct contrasts most favorably with that of the genteel population of the metropolis. Uh, Smith also takes Anderson to task for not discussing the erasure of the writing in Goulston Street. So here, Smith is reading between the lines. He's commenting on what is not said, but what should have been said. He writes, how Sir Charles Warren wiped out, I believe with his own hand, but will not speak positively, the writing on the wall, how he came to my office accompanied by Superintendent Arnold about seven o'clock the same morning to get information as to the murder of Catherine Eddowes, I have already stated on page 153. The facts are indisputable, yet Sir Robert Anderson studiously avoids all allusion to them. Is it because it would ill become him to violate the unwritten rule of the service? And he's quoting Anderson there. Or is he unwilling to put on record the unpardonable blunder of his superior officer? I leave my readers to decide. So these, uh, you know, I'm quoting here because these excerpts illustrate that Smith was not afraid to take his contemporary to task, both in what he, he did say and what he chose not to say. What's interesting to me is what Smith chose not to take Anderson to task for. Now, keep in mind, Smith was the uh, chief superintendent in 88. From 90 on, he was the uh, chief, you know, he was the commissioner. Um, he would have had knowledge of any significant developments in the Ripper case, particularly suspect and witness identifications that involved city witnesses, right? Um, and, or even just met. I mean, just he would have known, or he would have 
thought or assumed he would have known. So if he was reading Anderson talking about the witness suspect and all this, and it was he'd never heard of that before, it was all new to him, he would have said something in there. He would have probably called Anderson a liar, called his bluff. But he didn't do that. And what that says to me is that he was aware of the seaside home identification, uh, it, it, which to my mind means it did, it, you know, this Smith, by virtue of what he is not saying, is confirming that this took place. Um, now, clearly he also, he was not, <laughs> he was not um, convinced by Anderson uh, or by the witness identification that they had found the Ripper because uh, Smith is on record as saying the Ripper beat them all, you know. Uh, he has no idea who he was. Um, nevertheless, um, he does seem to be confirming that this witness identification took place now. Um, what is interesting is why didn't he believe that there was any value to it? I would suggest that it has to do with what he says a little further on in his book about uh, Joseph Lewindy, the uh, witness, um, who, you know, then and now, Lewindy is considered the prime, you know, the prime witness, the guy most likely to have seen Jack the Ripper um, with a uh, victim. And uh, so these comments offer some insight into that. Now, Smith misremembers Lewindy. As, he calls him sort of a hybrid German, but uh, that's neither here nor there. He, he recounts a part of a conversation he had with Lewindy, and apparently this is the part that Smith considered the most important. Smith writes, I think the German spoke the truth because I could not lead him in any way. You will easily recognize him, then, I said. Oh, no, he replied. I had only a short look at him. The German was a strange mixture, honest, apparently, and intelligent also. He had heard of some murders, he said, but they didn't seem to concern him. Um, now, given Sir Henry's reputation as a raconteur, uh, you know, and he's kind of he's kind of a boastful guy. You you might think he would take um, the fact that the city and not the Met produced the most viable witness, and he would elaborate, you know, um, you know, promote Lewindy to 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 the guy who definitely saw the Ripper and who could bring the whole mystery to a close. But he goes the opposite way with that. And basically paints a picture of him as an honest person who did see what he said he saw, but would be absolutely useless if he were to be shown a suspect. And what I believe Smith is doing here is offering us um, some insight into the seaside home identification. I believe in his memoir, he's confirming it happened, and he's telling us the witness was Lewindy. And he's going further, and Smith is a guy who would know, in saying that any evidence Lewindy had to give um, in identifying a suspect would be worthless because he said from the outset he would not know the guy again if he saw him. Anyway, so that's, you know, and this, this might, uh, I'm not trying to ruffle feathers, but I think if, if we're not already set in our biases, um, you know, what I'm saying makes an awful lot of sense and, uh, is, is, you know, pretty logical, I think, because I have no biases about it. I do personally believe um, that the um, Swanson, you know, marginality and all that, none of that, I don't think any of it's faked. Uh, I think it's all real. I think there's mistakes in it. It happens. Um, but uh, I think it happened. I think there was an identification that happened. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination convinced that, the suspect in question was Jack the Ripper. 
And I think the witness probably was Lewindy for this and other reasons. Um, but I think Smith's comments add a lot of weight to that. Now, switching gears again quickly, because I'm pressed for time, I want to touch upon a couple things I find interesting and important about Israel, Israel Schwartz, the Burner Street witness, one of my favorite guys. Uh, since the discovery of his evidence by Stephen Knight in the 70s, there's been a lot of debate about Schwartz, whether or not, or why he didn't appear at the debate if he did, or at the inquest, if he did so in camera behind the scenes, which it doesn't appear he did. Um, I've had a theory for years, I'd talk about it on the Casebook message boards, that the police were trying to trap the killer, uh, and they had placed the infamous star interview with Schwartz. Everyone's read it. There's two sources on Schwartz, you've got uh, the October 19th report uh, from Swanson, and you've got the Star interview from October 1st. And what I believe happened is that the police planted the Star interview. They got the details that are wrong in there. They got them wrong for a reason, and I believe that reason primarily was to draw out Pipe Man and, and secondarily to draw out Broad Shoulder Man and uh, make one of them feel safe enough to talk to the police to give evidence against the other. That's what I believe was happening. Of course, that's just a theory. Um, however, um, while doing research for Ripper Confidential, I was looking up you know, something totally different. I came upon an editorial in the Star Edition of October 3rd. This is only two days after they ran the Schwartz interview. And uh, my jaw dropped when I read it. Uh, the article read in part, a few words here as to the general system adopted in setting about the investigation of a murder mystery, such as the latest Whitechapel one and the others that have preceded it, may not be out of place. In investigating a crime, detectives proceed very quietly. It might be thought, and frequently through the agency of two credulous reporters, lead the really suspected person to believe that the scent lies quite in another quarter, while in reality his every movement is being closely watched. In some instances, the reluctance of witnesses to come forward with evidence is a great stumbling block in the way of success. Now, these words jumped off the page out of me because it's an editor of the Star taking the police to task, along with reporters who committed the sin of being too credulous, uh, for planning false stories with the objective of misleading suspects, and which is exactly what I think happened with the star. And it begins, what was telling to me is that it begins by referencing the latest Whitechapel murder. And this is curious because it was singular, not plural. Because remember, you got um, Stride, you've got Eddowes happening on the same night. All the papers didn't refer to the latest Whitechapel murder. They said murders. Um, although, you know, of course, Eddowes was killed in the city territory and, and, you know, Stride. So this article was interesting. It was pointing us directly at Stride and talking about the police um, planning a false article to mislead suspects. Well, the only big scoop that the star had had regarding the Stride murder and any sort of a witness was the interview with Schwartz. Uh, and that had appeared only two days earlier. So um, while this editorial stands as proof to nothing except the writer's own frustration with certain police practices and perhaps his suspicions about the Schwartz interview, I personally think it, along with other evidence I present in uh, more detail in my book, points us in the direction of what the police were thinking 
um, why the Schwartz situation was handled as it was. And if that's correct, then finding Pipe Man was a priority for the police at the time, and at least as much so as finding um, Broad Shouldered Man. Now, the interest in Pipe Man would have been, uh, you know, threefold. Uh, he was potentially the killer of Stride. He was another innocent witness, but one who could corroborate Schwartz um, and perhaps offer more details. Or he was in tandem with Broad Shouldered Man um, and would be willing to give evidence against him if he came forward and was offered some deal or measure of protection. Um, now, I believe the possibility that Pipe Man was the killer himself is heightened by some research I presented in Ripper Confidential that shows that James Brown, um, and not Israel Schwartz, was likely to have been the last person to have seen Stride alive, and that the man Brown saw her with was probably Schwartz's Pipe Man. It's interesting to note that Brown saw his man in the exact same spot where Israel Schwartz would see Pipe Man emerge and they were both wearing long overcoats. Um, the reason I think Brown, in a nutshell, the reason I think Brown was the last man to see Schwartz is Schwartz was very firm. We have his time documented, 1245. Um, we have uh, Fanny Mortimer. Uh, I go into great detail in my book about her. I think she's the single, she is the single most important witness uh, in the Burner Street case. Everything has to fit around her because she was corroborated by Leon Goldstein. So she has credibility. And, uh, but if you read, I, and I put in my book, um, a lot of different what newspapers have said uh, or how they reported his evidence. And there's a pattern. He did not say that he saw Liz Stride at 1245, as all Ripper books tell us he said. They always pit Schwartz against Brown at 1245. That's not what he said. He left his house at 1245. He would have then had to have walked to the, to the Chandler shop. He said he spent three or four minutes in the shop and then left and was on his way walking back home when he saw Stride with her man. And I thought, well, what do you know? That means, you know, he saw Stride around 1252. Now, Schwartz would have already come and gone. And so what I suspect happened is the, the incident that Schwartz witnessed with BS Man and Pipe Man uh, had already occurred, DS Man was gone, and Pipe Man was comforting Stride. Now, as this would have been only eight minutes or so before her body was found, um, that makes Pipe Man her mo most likely her killer, or the man that we know of most likely to have been her killer, since he would have been the last man to see her. Anyways, all this is detailed in my book. Read the chapters on Fanny Mortimer and Israel Schwartz. You can't go wrong. Good stuff. Um... Now, in closing, because I think I'm, like, way past time, uh, I want to, oh, look, it's my cat, Tabby. Say hi, Tabby. She's not a Tabby. She's a Maine Coon. If she was a Tabby, I would have named her Maine Coon. Mwah. Um, in closing, I want to offer my sincerest thanks to Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, uh, Andrew Firth, and, you know, of course, my man, P.H., uh, M.C. Philip Hutchinson, for hosting my digital self today. Uh, most importantly, to all the delegates who took time out to, to, you know, and spent your money to come out and watch this stuff. Um, I hope I made some measure of sense, and in, in, and I hope I don't know how the audio and sound quality is going to be. I hope they're good. Um, but also, I want to, you know, give a quick shout out to Edward Stowe and Gary Barnett 
they pointed out an error I had made in Ripper Confidential. I stated that potential Ripper victim Margaret Millis or Millos uh, had been registered at the London Hospital on August 31st, which is what I believed, hence why I published it. Um, but in fact, as Barnett and Poe, uh, or in Stowe, uh, pointed out to me, it was actually September 1st. So much thank you and a future edition that will absolutely be corrected and you will be given full credit. Thank you guys. Anyway, that is all. I'm going to turn it back over to your gracious host and hopefully at some point in the not too far future, um, I can join you there in person. I hope you enjoyed the background you know, behind me, I wanted to pick the most boring wall uh, in my house so that you could focus on me. That's only only right. So anyways, uh, thank you guys. Uh, enjoy saying bye to each other since we're at the end of the conference, and I will see you again soon. Find me on the Internet. And that was Tom Westcott speaking at the 2017 East End Conference. I'd like to thank Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, and Andrew Firth for making this and all of the presentations we are releasing possible. We at RipperCast really appreciate the ongoing cooperation enabling us to bring these talks on Victorian history to the public. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders in Victorian history and crime. I'd like to thank Tom Westcott for agreeing to allow for the release of his talk, and thank you for listening. Until next time.